one plus one equals two. Good morning, good day, and good evening. And good night. Good night. Welcome to the Insomnia Report episode 50. Woo! 50 nifty. Yay. Wow. That's a lot, y'all. Exciting. It is. Exciting. Thanks for being here. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for being here. That's a new one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Margo. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are the two friends and roommates that like to talk about the things that keep us up at night. We got a classroom report for you today. So get your textbooks. There will be a pop quiz at the end. It will not be graded. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It will actually be 50% of your grade. So Mm. I will light the candle. Would you like to tell me about your week? I've done a whole lot of, I well, I feel like I've been really busy, but also haven't done anything. Mm. But we have a big work event tomorrow, and I will be working till midnight. Fun. So. Be safe. Have fun. What kind of event? Is it a party? Are you making a party? <laughs> it's pretty much a big party. Nice. So, also, it's really cold out. Randy might make an appearance. We've heard him wake up. Then. <laughs> <laughs> so, we missed him. If you're new here, Randy is our radiator. Yes. And he, he likes to make noise. He likes to interrupt us at the worst times. Yes. But we love him. Oh, I remember what's kept me up. Yes. The centipede saga okay. of last weekend. Right. Uh, yeah. House centipedes, y'all. They're the worst. If you've never seen one, Google it. Or maybe not. Maybe you don't want to see it. I mean, we've talked about them before, but it's the time of yeah. year where as it gets cold, the buggies move in. Mm-hmm. So I was not here last weekend, so I was just getting updates from Elizabeth. There was a centipede in our bathroom and one in our closet, and I couldn't find the one in our bathroom after a while, and it was really, really big, so I was scared to go in there by myself. Well, um, I come home from visiting my parents, and Elizabeth is like holding the vacuum in the hallway, <laughs> not moving. I'm like, are you okay? And she goes, centipedes. I'm like, okay. Uh yeah, and then the next morning, just as I was about to get in the shower, it fell off of the wall into the bathtub and drowned, thank God. At least it didn't happen while you were in the shower. I know. Yeah, if I had gotten in like a few seconds earlier, it would have fallen on me in my most vulnerable state, <laughs> and I would have just screamed I don't murder. think you ever would have been the same after that. Truly would not have been. I could just imagine you on a rocking chair with like a blanket over you staring out a window. Oh my God. Like, Elizabeth, can you hear me? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're okay. Thank you. What about you? It's kept you up. How's your week going? So I've been following the Gabby Patino case. Oh, yeah. And it's obviously very tragic. Mm. And the latest update is they found Brian Laundrie, her former fiance or boyfriend's body. And the whole thing is super frustrating Mm -hmm. and incredibly sad. 
For those of you who haven't been following the story, Gabby and her fiance, Brian, were living the van life dream and they were hashtag traveling van life. hashtag yeah. van life they were traveling all the national parks and there was this police body cam footage at least recorded after some civilians reported a domestic dispute and they let you know them go and then brian returned to florida in gabby's van and gabby wasn't there and then later they found her body and mm. his family it's just super sketchy they're like oh yeah he went hiking four days ago and he hasn't been home since and they they basically ghosted gabby's family and they just wanted answers and it's just wow. an incredibly frustrating case and now they searched this area in florida for a very long time they had tons of people looking for brian and they had cadaver dogs and then yesterday the parents happened to go there and then find his backpack it's like that's so suspicious to me that's really sus yeah like i don't know anything but anyway gabby's family started the gabby petito foundation which helps other people have resources to find their loved ones if they go missing i will put information in the link the thing is her case got so much publicity and Mm. there are so many families and people that are missing that don't have as much resources so it's to fund the people that need it so i just wanted to that's so nice i mean in a sad situation in a sad way but during the search they found nine total missing people seriously because it was such a big search remains yeah so they could have done that earlier that's that's what i'm saying it's so frustrating oh my gosh wow i didn't know that yeah it's really wow well at least those people got closure I like, think maybe it was nine, include Gabby and Brian. I'm not okay. sure, but they found multiple bodies while searching. Anyway, that's been on my mind. It's been heavy on my mind. And, you know, it's one thing to help your child when they're in trouble, but if your child murders your potential daughter in law and you're mm-hmm. not doing anything to help, yeah, that does that makes you just as guilty. Right. You know? I knew. Right. Anyway, so okay. that's been heavy on my mind. Mm. Um, I will put the Gabby Petito Foundation's link in our bio and her parents and her family have been really incredible during this. They, I, it's just, it's heartbreaking and I can't imagine, but anyway, yeah, that's all. That's what's been on my mind and mm. I don't know what else to say because I don't have all the resources right now. I'm sure we'll find out more. <sighs> yeah. At some point. Rest in peace, Gabby. I'm so yeah. sorry. <sighs> all right teach me something i will try so there are some tales we have reported on in the past that have similar connections to today's classroom report if y'all can recall elizabeth has covered the salem witch trials and i also covered some pandemics or examples of hysteria mm-hmm. however mm-hmm. Did you know in New England, 200 years after the Salem witch trials, there was a vampire panic? <laughs> no. Well. I didn't know that. Today you will learn. It took place. That's so cool. Yep. And we did not learn. We learned about Salem a whole lot. Yeah. But yeah. it's New England and it's the tuberculosis period in the 19th century. So tuberculosis, or TB for short, is a bacterial infection of the lungs. TB was also known as consumption because if someone had it, if someone had this illness, it would slowly consume them 
and everything about them, which is why they called it that. So that's a sad fun fact. Oh, great. Symptoms included fatigue, weight loss, night sweats, coughing up blood. During this time, it was also known that people would become incredibly pale or their features would become sunken because they were losing weight. Uh, It was also known as the White Plague because people did become incredibly pale. Mm. Like mentioned, they would also become ashen and sunken as if they were, quote, having the life sucked out of them. According to History.com, 1786 is when health officials started to actually record mortality rates. Oh. And between 1786 and 1800, consumption had wiped out 2% of New England's population. Oh, my God. And people with tuberculosis had a 80% chance of dying from the illness. That's so sad. It's really sad. But you have to also keep in mind, they did not really know how diseases spread. Mm -hmm. They did not have vaccines or antibiotics. People also tend to live in smaller quarters. So, you know, it's hard to say what we know now, the social distancing and medicine Mm. and vaccines and everything. PSA. It was definitely a, a different time for obvious reasons, but what's more is in the beginning of the 19th century, tuberculosis would be the death of one in seven of all people that had ever lived. Oh, my God. A lot of people had lived. Yeah. So, yikes. Yikes. Thank God for modern medicine, y'all. That's all. Surely, as I had previously alluded to, this was a time before people knew how diseases spread or how to treat people. Because of how frequently people were dying and because there was no scientific explanation, as mentioned in the Horsemen of the Apocalypse or in, you know, mass hysteria when bad things happen in great sums, people tend to look for some sort of cause. Some mm-hmm. sort so, you know, when there's a bunch of war and famine, you know, people are saying, Oh, you know, the rapture's coming mm-hmm. or what have you, or during the bubonic plague it was, oh, God's punishing us and what have you. So this time around wasn't witches, but it was vampires that was causing people to <laughs> to die. No, not Edward Cullen. Uh, oh. I know, I know, <laughs> I know that when we think of vampires, we think of Edward Cullen, we think of Dracula, or we think of Vlad the Impaler. Oh yeah, Nosferatu. 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 Vampires. That is what was causing tuberculosis at this time. They thought vampires were stalking their families. They would rise up from the grave and drain the life out of them. That was the explanation. But Le- they surely they knew what TB was. Like, even if they didn't know it was germs or whatever, like, they knew there was a disease. They knew something right? was wrong, for, for huh. sure. Interesting. I mean, they knew something was wrong, but they thought, you know, maybe people are getting weak because of this, or they're, like, kind of, you know, if you give something energy like a Mm. stronger type thing okay and as i 
also said, I, I jump ahead of myself on a lot of these bullets. So as we've learned, or hopefully learned, illness can be spread when you are in close proximity to people. Families at the time often lived in very close arrangements, which could explain why some families were entirely wiped out. So some people believed that if one family member passed away, they would slowly come for the rest of their family. Oh, So it's okay. like, oh dear. Yikes. So I would like you to meet a family of Rhode Island in 1883. So we have this man named George Brown, and he is a farmer, pretty well respected, I believe, in a town called Exeter. Well, Rhode Island is pretty small, but it's a town called Exeter. And George had unfortunately lost his wife, Mary, to the illness in 1883. And then his 20-year-old daughter, Mary Olive who was a dressmaker, followed shortly after. So the entire town actually came to Mary Olive's funeral and sang the hymn, One Sweetly Solemn Through. And she had actually picked that when she was on her deathbed. She was like, I want you to sing this at my funeral. That's so sad. That is sad. But they did, and apparently like the whole town went, and they wrote wrote, like a beautiful obituary for her. Oh. So, actually, fast forward 10 years later, and in the winter of 1893, 10 years after Mary and Olive had passed, George's 19-year-old daughter, Mercy, passed away after having the illness for a year. Oh, no. George also had a son named Edwin, which I love that name. Yeah. Yeah. Who was also ill. He was coughing up blood and struggling to breathe. But after the death of his mother and sister, which, mind you, it was like a 10-year period, Mm. and before the death of Mercy, he actually went out to Colorado to try to heal. Although they didn't know a whole lot about it, they thought fresh air and dry air would be best. Mm -hmm. And this is actually how Colorado got on the map because – Physicians believed it would help tuberculosis for high altitudes, dry air, and sunshine, and breathe in the fresh air rather than being in kind of like the stormy, humid Mm. areas that they Mm. previously were. So they made sanatoriums that were kind of spa-like, where people would, you know, kind of relax or enjoy services while they Mm. got treated or before they died. Edwin went for about 18 months, but eventually he wasn't really getting better and he was grown homesick, so he returned, but he found out that Mercy had died in his absence. Oh. No one told him? (laughs) Come on, I'm not sure if they didn't tell him, but it was like she had died when he was gone. Okay. So actually, I worded that as if it was like, oh, why didn't you tell me about Mercy? Yeah. So. Okay. She had died when he was gone, but he, he came back. And since this was a time before antibiotics, according to actually the CDC, in the 1800s, remedies included cod liver oil, uh, vinegar massages, which I feel like would burn. Yeah. uh, Or inhaling hemlock or turpentine. Mm, Okay. They also uh, believed in bloodletting. Which is where you are cut and you try to bleed the disease out, which probably, I mean, most likely is very not good for you because if anything, you need the blood cells to like right. 
You need that. You need that. And also exercise outdoors. Fun fact, the most common outdoor activity was horseback riding because patients could get fresh air without overworking their lungs by like having a walk or what have you. In 1875, the first sanatorium was opened for tuberculosis in North Carolina. And by 1904, there were 115 different sanatoriums that could have the capacity for 8,000 patients. Wow. They figured it would eventually be best for the sick to get away from their family, so they started to figure this out. And like I said, they would get fresh air, good food, and sometimes they would have some sort of surgery. It wasn't until 1882 that a scientist named Robert Koch reported to have discovered a bacteria that caused tuberculosis. Mm. And he won the Nobel Prize in Science and Medicine in 1905. Good job. He called the presentation about the bacteria the Etologie der Tuberculosa. That was supposed to be German. I don't know. Oh, it's in German? Yeah. But (laughs) but basically the... Something of tuberculosis. Anyway. Etymology? He won. He won a prize because he was smart. And it was in this discovery that he also concluded it was not genetic but contagious. Mm. So that was also kind of what helped people realize there's more development here. Mm. So thank you, Robert. Before that, you know, doctors couldn't explain what was going on and as I had mentioned, people kind of started to panic and especially when... George's family were all passing away. So Mm. Edwin was getting worse and worse, and George was starting to get desperate. And I don't know if the villagers were trying to be helpful, but they started to basically convince him that, hey, when family members die off, it's because one of your family members is probably a vampire. Of course. And one of them's returning at night to feed off the living, and if you don't act, they're going to take Edwin. In an article from 1892, it said, quote, By some unexplained and unreasonable way, in some part of the deceased relative's body, live flesh and blood might be found, which is supposed to feed on the living who are in feeble health. So there was like an actual article that wow. talked about how they believed that That's wild. if you were to exhume your body of a loved one, if they look intact, they're a vampire. Obviously. Obviously. So George was initially reluctant to believe the legend, but eventually he agreed to have the bodies of his wife and two daughters exhumed. Oh. He did not go for obvious reasons. Okay, good. But it was a doctor and some townsfolk that on March 17th, so St. Patrick's Day, in the morning, a doctor and some locals buried up the bodies. The wife and Olive were pulled up and they were decomposed in normal skeletons. Mind you, they had died 10 years previously. Mm -hmm. However, to everyone's horror, horror, Mercy's body was still normal as if she had been sleeping and she was undecayed. Ooh. When they performed an autopsy, there was still blood in her heart. So the townsfolk freaked out and said, she's a vampire. We have to burn her organs. And the doctor was like, hey, guys. I mean, she died in the winter and it was like three months ago. You know, it's not going to decompose at the same rate, but okay. So the villagers 
burned her heart and liver. Ew. What do you think they did with the ashes? I don't I don't know. What did they do? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> they fed the ashes to Edwin, thinking that that'll stop the vampire. What the fuck? Yeah. Ew. So they made like a potion for him, thinking like, oh, well, this is from the vampire, so it'll protect you from the vampire. Oh, my God. That's so weird. That's so gross. Yeah, that's really gross. That's disgusting. That's really gross. You know what happened, though? Did he get better? No, he died two months later. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. So while exhuming Mercy's body, it was towards the end of the vampire scare, but it had gone on for quite some time. However, Mercy's story made global headlines. Some people were saying that, quote, We seem to have been transported back to the darkest age of unreasoning ignorance and blind superstition. Instead of living in the 19th century and in a state calling itself enlightened and Christian, according to the Smithsonian. Hmm. So people were, towards the end of it, trying to come up with different scientific reasons for the illness rather than its vampires. So when they heard... Mm. The story about Mercy, they're like, why? Right. Excuse me? Mm. And in the wake of Mercy's tale, a writer for the London Post said, quote, Whatever forces drove that Yankee vampire, it was an American problem and most certainly not the product of British folk tradition. Even though, like, most people of the time okay. were probably from, like, British descent, but right. went all the way overseas. Hmm. Wow. In 1986, a clipping of the article even found its way into the hands of Bram Stoker, mm. who is well known for writing his gothic Dracula, which was published in 1897. It is believed that Mercy was actually the inspiration for the character Lucy in the book. Wow. Who was a teen girl who turned into a vampire. And then H.P. Lovecraft wrote a short story called The Shunned House, which was a tale of a man haunted by his dead relatives, and it included a character named Mercy. Mm. So she inspired some famous works. What's more proof of the vampire pandemic is in the 1990s, so pretty recently, Two boys from Connecticut were playing around in a local quarry because, you know, this was before video games and TikTok mm -hmm. to the extent that we know it. And they were hanging in a quarry, you know, kicking up rocks and playing like tag. And, you know, like what kids do. Exactly. <laughs> Getting scraped knees and stuff. So they actually uh, accidentally unearth human remains. Great. And they go home and one of the boys told his mom. And she was kind of skeptical. And then he's like, look, it's a skull. And it was like, excuse me, young human of mine. Why did you bring this home oh with my you? God. <laughs> no. Um, so police were called and the area was blocked off because they thought it was a homicide. However, with forensics and anthropologists and however they figure it out, it was determined that the remains were far too old to be a recent homicide. Mm. So they actually found a site of an unmarked family plot and there was about 29 burials wow. like found and it was determined that they were from between the 17 to 1800s there was one particular grave that stood out and according to smithsonian there were like a bunch of big rocks on it mm -hmm. and then 
On the actual coffin, there were brass nails all over it that spelled out the initials J and B. So J as in juice and B as in Beyonce. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Juice Beyonce. So they're like, well, this is weird. They opened up the lid and the skeleton had been completely rearranged. So okay. (laughs) Don't want that. No. Put it back where you found it and don't ask questions. (laughs) The skull was actually beheaded and the thigh bones and skull were used to make a skull and crossbone like a Jolly Roger. So the bones of JB were actually sent to be studied while all the other coffins they found were going to be reburied. But they sent JB away and he was studied and they were able to find out that he was a man who was around 50 or so and... They were able to dig up, I think, in a former newspaper article that said in a town called Jewett City, Connecticut, in 1854, many town folk would actually exhume corpses of those speculated to be vampires coming back from their graves to kill the living. Mm. And that was a common practice that they did because, I guess, like, by beheading the skeleton, it, it wouldn't be a vampire anymore. Mm-hmm. Not sure, but they found an article that this was common in that town. Mm-hmm. In regards to Mercy, these practices were not uncommon, but she did actually go down as, quote, New England's last vampire since she was towards the end of this hysteria. To this day, her grave is a popular tourist spot, and unlike the Salem witch trials, I suppose on the bright side, it was kind of a place where villagers would point fingers after they had died. Right. Instead of someone saying, oh, it's a witch, like, you must kill her. It's like, he's already dead. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So, that is the story of the New England vampire panic. My sources were... From Smithsonian by an article by Abigail Tucker, All Things Interest, an article by Jacqueline Anglis, the CDC on tuberculosis and its history, a mental floss article by Kayla Cathy, and a few articles from History.com, one author being Crystal Ponte, and another by Christopher Quine. Thank you. Yeah. That's so interesting. I thought so. And I thought it was fitting around, you know, spooky season still. Yeah. It's interesting how, like, the first thing people go to is like, oh, yeah, it's a vampire. Right. Of course. (laughs) Must be. Must be. Witches, vampires. Yeah. Surprised there weren't werewolves. Oh. Oh. I thought it was interesting. Like, I definitely never heard of it. Oh, me neither. Me neither. Don't want to eat that potion, though. Ew, no. That's so so gross. Oh, my God. I hope they all rest in peace. Me too. Edwin, I'm sorry you had to eat your sister's heart it says that that guy's whole family died i know i my theory is like you know since he was the farmer maybe he was outside away from mm-hmm. them more mm-hmm. i don't know but i mean that's really sad to watch your whole family die yeah, jesus i know i can't imagine i hope you all rest in peace but um, <sighs> anyway that's my tale thank you yeah this story is a hometown one for us Ooh. uh we are going nowhere (laughs) nowhere none of you will know we are staying right here we actually live in a ghost town and we are in chicago oh okay (laughs) that's where we live y'all okay 
But we're going back to the late 1800s, oh. 1871 in okay. particular. Lots happened that year. Germany was founded as a country in 1871. Well, that's a fun fact. Yes. And we're going, it's October actually, 1871, so <laughs> almost 150 years ago. Wow. Well, a little bit over. We're going to meet a family named the O'Learys. Okay. Catherine or Kate and Patrick O'Leary came to Chicago from Cary, Ireland. They lived at 137 DeCoven Street, which is like a little bit southwest of downtown. Patrick bought a cottage with a barn for $500. He was actually a soldier in the Union Army, which is pretty cool in the Civil War. Catherine had a dairy business, which was doing pretty well, so she could put her sons through Catholic school. So sweet. Yeah. They were Catholic, if you didn't know, uh, from Ireland. Really? They they had some tenants in their house, McLaughlin's. McLaughlin's? I don't know. I, other Irish people. Right. Sounds very uh, Irish, like, no doubt. Yeah. And Chicago had a very large Irish community. I mean, it still does, but originally from Ireland when they all came over at that time. And it was a very rapidly growing city it went from around this time it went from a hundred people to three hundred thousand people in 40 years so it was bustling everyone was coming to chicago it was my kind of town (laughs) it was the railroad capital of the world and i think still kind of is all of the railroad tracks in the U.S. intersected in Chicago. Amtrak and, and Union Station. Right. We have so many train stations. We have so many. So many and trains. the trains transported things like grain, lumber, cattle, pigs. Humans. I don't know about humans. Oh, well, they do now. Don't they? Oh, know? you're totally right. Like, I was... I was, I don't know what I was picturing. Like yes, dead bodies? Passenger, like... <laughs> I don't know. Passenger okay. trains. No, yeah, you're right. Okay. Right, right, right. And they had the... The stockyards with the meat packing and everything. Oh, the jungle. The jungle. Upton Sinclair. The downtown was really beautiful. They had lots of buildings made from limestone, like fancy architectural buildings. Mm -hmm. We are well known for our architecture. We are. Come visit. Take a boat tour. Yeah, take a boat tour. Uh, But most of the houses at the time were made of wood. Even the sidewalks were made of wood, actually. Weird. And water pipes were made with wood. Who thought that was a good idea? I don't, honestly, I don't know. It's not going to rot or anything. It's fine. Right. It's, mm, yeah, okay. There was a new way of building houses called, using something called a balloon frame that made it easier to build lots of houses. And so the city kept growing with these wood houses and uh, there really wasn't any consideration though of how they would fit in with the environment and and yeah they just sort of like built and built and built everyone was focused on having a new life making money basically right. there was also a huge class divide in the city at this time i mean there still is but there still is especially between immigrants and of course there was a small black community at this time as well and then the ones on the highest rungs of the social ladder were East Coast Protestants mm-hmm. who came to Chicago to get rich. Wow. And they were kind of like hoity-toity. They're, they're just rich, you know? This guy named Joseph Medill was one of the founders of the Chicago Tribune newspaper. 
You may not recognize his name from Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. But he was one of these East Coast Protestants and he hated Irish people. Oh, Like rude. Irish Catholics. He would just rant about them in the newspaper all the time. Well, that... And it was basically the rhetoric that everyone's familiar with. Like, oh, they're lazy. They're living off the welfare. They're having all these babies. Yeah, Yeah, they're all drunks, blah, blah, blah. We know how to party on St. Patrick's (laughs) Day, okay? Come at me. Right, right, right. Also Um, rude, okay? It's it's rude. Stop. It's rude. Be nice to people. How many times do we have to tell you? I know. One of the reasons that they looked down on Catholics especially Irish Catholics, was, I guess, the mindset at the time, and I think this still exists today, is, like, to be American, you have to come to the U.S. and just leave your home country behind, basically. And they thought that Catholics couldn't really do that because they were loyal to the Pope, who was not American. I don't really understand the logic there, but... They were just being racist, is what they were. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and, of course... Um, you know, so the, the Irish were like at the bottom of the social ladder and then there were black people in Chicago who were below them on the social ladder. There was a small community of African-Americans um, living near the lake on the south side. That was before the Great Migration. So uh, more black people came to the city in later years. But at the time, immigrants were blamed for everything that was wrong with the city, basically. Mm. Like and, vampires, you know? Yeah. You can't just admit you that you're sick. Goat. It has to be a mm-hmm. has to be a supernatural thing. Yeah. So back to Chicago in 1871, October. It was unseasonably hot and dry. It was in the 80s, like all month. 80s and above. And since July of that year, they'd gotten only like one inch of rain. Cute. So it was like very, very dry. Bone dry. In a, in a drought, and there were little fires everywhere all the time. Oh, isn't there a in book? The city. Oh, yeah. Little <laughs> fires everywhere. Yes. Not the same thing. Uh, the fire department at that time in Chicago had 185 firemen. And remember, there were 300,000 people in the city, so it's not very so many. So they're understaffed is what you're saying. Grossly understaffed. And their fire engines were pulled by horses. Cute. So- <laughs> oh, do they have little lights on their heads oh that go woo that would be cute. I love an animal with a job. Like, good job, horses. They- I loved employed animals. <laughs> During the first week of October, there were 20 fires in Chicago. Wow. The first um, week? Yeah. So the firefighters were very worn out. They were like, you know, I'm done. This is, I'm working too much. So there's lots of fires. So on October 8th, 1871, Legend says that Catherine O'Leary, we're going back to the to the O'Leary's. The milk lady. Yes. Uh, she was allegedly milking her cow in the barn. As one does as a milk farmer. Yeah. And the cow, it is said, knocked over a lantern. Ah, Bessie. Which, you know, started it on fire. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Oh. It was the cow that tip the fiery lantern there you go the thought though of a barn being in chicago is so foreign to me oh i know i can't even picture it no anyway <laughs> but i mean at that time the city looked just so completely different well, like, we sure. would not have been I, able to recognize right it. no so that's what that's what the legend says 
Catherine herself said that she and her family were asleep. She went to bed at 8 p.m. She could hear her tenants, the McLaughlins, playing the fiddle. They were having a party. I love that. But first of all, bed at 8? Good for (laughs) you. I am jealous. Well, if you think about, you know, it starts to get dark earlier in October. So maybe she got up at like an ungodly hour. Still pretty jealous. No, I know. I wish I could do that. (laughs) So she heard them having a party and she had a hard time sleeping. And just as she started to fall asleep, she noticed that her barn was on fire. Oh, no. So she actually had no idea how this fire started. but Allegedly. But. Her tale. Yeah. But but also, like, no one milks a cow at night. So. Maybe she just wanted a late night milk before (laughs) bed, you know. Maybe. Maybe. And this started what is now known as the Great Chicago Fire. Ah, ba-ba. (laughs) great i'm so excited so the fire started and like i said it was very hot and dry in chicago that year and it spread very quickly and everything was made of wood right everything was made of wood which did not help flammable yes everything was a fire hazard yes and there were these watchmen guys, I guess, all over. I don't really know what their jobs were. Maybe they just stood on the street and, like, looked around and... I don't know. But, Have you seen Corpse Bride? Yes. It reminds me of the guy that, like, rings a bell. Oh, yeah. He's he, like, he, 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 he. Mrs. O'Leary's cow. <laughs> Started the city on fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a watchman, and he was like, oh, there's a fire. And he reported it to the fire department i guess uh, okay good but good he citizen. sent them to the wrong spot idiot somehow. moron i take it back <laughs> come on matthias uh. and so they got to the fire 45 minutes after he first spotted it and by then it was too late it had already burned several blocks of the city people started coming out of their houses to watch it's kind of like it reminded me of like when we had a tornado siren and my dad would go in the backyard to, like, try and take a picture of the sky. Like, they just, you know, it's like right. people want to want to watch these things. Right. <laughs> even though they're really dangerous. Right. Exactly. But then the fire escalated and people realized, okay, this is not, like, your normal fire. It can't be tamed. Fire. <laughs> it's um, not a regular fire. <laughs> it's a special fire. So it was really loud if you can like imagine the sound of a a roar a roaring rushing. yeah yeah f- fire Ooh. over a, a long scale Ugh, i don't like it and the wind came in and blew it blew the flames 500 so feet helpful. in the air so helpful i know they were blown 500, 500 feet? feet in the air and they turned them into these things called fire devils or fire whirls which are like little fire tornadoes. No. Yeah. That, that is what? like, I would think that apocalypse was happening. I'd be I like, know. all right, kids, it's time to go die. It's horrible. Have a nice day. And so they went around and just sucked the roofs off of houses and dropped them other places and spread the fire even further. That is so rude of it. I know. It was It was in the air. It was, and then it would all, this is horrible. It also like sucked in whole flocks of pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> just like, whoop. what a way to go oh god geez you see all these like roasted like birds on the street oh no Uh, yeah i'm sad Mm -hmm. okay but 
can we take a minute to just appreciate how horrifying that would i can't. can you imagine you're just like no. drinking your coffee and you're like oh another great day and you open the, <laughs> you open the curtains and like everything's yeah. dark and like there's these cyclops or cyclones of fire Mm-mm. no it's like honey no. uh what's a no for me yeah no no okay <laughs> i'm enjoying this far too much and it should um very much not be a laughing matter well i understand you though i understand you okay at some point the firefighters just gave up because they didn't have the resources to fight it and they knew it people thought that the river would act as a barrier because the, if you haven't been to Chicago, the river has three branches that go through the city. And they thought since it was, it started west of the river and it was moving east towards the river and the lake. Like they're Michigan. like, we're safe. Yeah, they're like, oh, the river will stop the fire. But um, actually, one, the river was really polluted mm-hmm. yeah. and was flammable in of itself. Well, that's a um, that's a damper on things, which is unfortunate, and it also just blew across the river with the wind and everything. So it didn't even it was like skipping rocks mm-hmm. up the river, and so then these people were like, "Oh no!" Uh, the fire moved downtown. Mm. People were panicking in the streets, as one does. Yes. Yeah, there was a place called the south side gas works mm-hmm. and it provided gas i guess like light to most of the city and oh, that okay. that exploded oh good so the whole city was just in a blackout that is even better it's yeah it just good. keeps getting worse <laughs> and so the mayor at the time was like holy shit and hey guys we're gonna need a bigger hose <laughs> If only they had one. Oh, no. But they didn't. Oh, no. The mayor sent telegrams to Milwaukee and Detroit and other areas nearby. Yeah. And they were like, hey, like, it's this is going to be really bad. Can you take some people? Um, Because they're not going to be, they're going to be homeless. Right. Um, The most important building in the city, the courthouse, which was supposed to be fireproof, caught on fire. Okay. Anything? That says proof of the Titanic was supposed to be unsinkable. Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me that this was like fireproof. Okay. I know. Okay. Don't trust it. But go on. Go on. All the prisoners in the courthouse were released because oh, otherwise fine. they would have burnt alive in jail. Well, I'm glad that they let them go. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> instead of having a horrible... Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The walls of fire that swept across blocks were 100 feet tall. I don't like that. No, me neither. I Like I said, some of the buildings downtown were made of limestone and it just like melted off the sides of the building. The buildings were exploding. It was just, you know, it was just a lot was going on. Yeah. People t- tried to escape the city via the wooden bridges. So that wasn't really helpful because those would start on fire and then the people would start on fire and it was really bad also along the river so one of the reasons that it was able to cross the river and spread was around the river there were lots of lumber yards Mm. and coal yards so that didn't help because it was caught on fire too then on october 9th so the next day it started to rain oh good but it was gasoline the (laughs) the raindrops were gasoline (laughs) no 
Thank goodness. Uh, at this point, though, the fire already started to burn itself out. Oh, good. Yeah. It had spread from the southwest side of the loop, which is the downtown, north and then east through the downtown and then north again through the north side. So how far north did it go? I can show you. Okay. Not as far north as us. There are some pre-fire houses that exist in Chicago. I saw a picture of one. It's pretty cool. They're, they just like our houses that didn't burn for some reason. You go house. You're so resilient. <sighs> I think the Northern Street is like division or something. Okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like I said, it rained and then the fire had already started to burn itself out. And the second the fire went out, they started rebuilding. So for a lot of people, they couldn't clear the streets yet because the ground was too hot or stuff Mm. was still melted. Ultimately, the fire destroyed about four miles or or destroyed an area about four miles long and three quarters of a mile wide. Wow. It destroyed 73 miles of roads, 120 miles of sidewalks, 2,000 lampposts, 17,500 buildings, and... It cost $222 million in property damage. Wow. Which was about a third of the property in Chicago. Holy cow. Yeah. So 90,000 Chicagoans were homeless because of this. One in three. And they recovered 120 bodies, Mm. but they believe the death toll is around 300. Oh. Yeah. Some people may not have just left any remains because they might have just burned I'm sure, yeah. Which is so horrible. Oh, God. After the fire, the mayor put the city under martial law for two weeks. What does that mean? It meant that they brought in troops and basically they brought in the army to kind of like prevent looting and stuff and maintain quote unquote order. And that was under General Sheridan. Oh, Sheridan. Yeah. That's a road here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And there a you stop go. on the red line. After the fire, people all over the world sent donations because so nice. it was a global, like people heard about it all over the world. So uh, New York gave the city $450,000. So nice. Thanks, New York. St. Louis donated as well. And London. There's, a, I thought this was really cute. There's a town in Scotland called Green Knock with a population of 40,000 people. And they had a town meeting and sent over 500 pounds. That's so cute. I know. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> so nice. Oh, I want, kind of want to go there. Let's go there. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. We'll visit Nessie and her wife. I heard they're doing well. Yeah. They're laying low these days. You know. Hanging out. I heard they like to eat toes. <laughs> <laughs> nope, my toes. Horrible. Uh. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Buffalo, New York also donated, and Milwaukee. Milwaukee <laughs> sent some firefighting equipment. Yeah, so people or public buildings were turned into refugee or homeless shelters. And, um, oh, this is cute too. So in London, there was this book donation, and they thought that Chicago had lost its library in the fire. And so all these people in London collected a a library of like 8,000 books. Wow. And sent it to Chicago. Thank you. But 
it turns out that there wasn't a public library in Chicago at the time. Um, they were mostly private libraries where you had to like pay to oh. join. And so they're like, wow, okay, well, we have all these books now. I guess we'll just start one. Oh, thank you. So, I always wanted to start a library. <laughs> so that's how the Chicago Public Library started with some 8,000 books from uh, London. I did not know that. So that's thank so you. cool. I know. Isn't that cool? The fire codes were edited i would after this so uh also because of subsequent fires such as the iroquois fire and things like that but i'll talk about that in another episode yeah chicago's firefighters became kind of famous for being good at their jobs and now there's a show called chicago fire Mm -hmm. and it is a very true reenactment (laughs) (laughs) um yes it's based on a true story no uh, oh, I forgot to mention that the Palmer House Hotel also burned in this fire. Mm. It was like two weeks after it opened. So or sad. Something. So but sad. But then they rebuilt it. It's a very nice hotel. You should check it out if you're ever in Chicago. And it claimed to be the world's first fireproof hotel. Perfect. So that's kind of cute. The Actually, the house, the O'Leary's house survived the fire somehow. Oh. Even though it was convenient. next to the barn. Right. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not blaming her. Right. But it was torn down in nineteen fifty six and what remains what is now at the location is a fire academy. Was that intentional? I wanna think I wanna say so. Right. Because that's pretty on the nose. Right. You know. Pretty if it was big. a coincidence, I'd I would be. I don't it the fire inspired songs. There's one that was really popular called A Hot Time in the Old Town. Hmm. But the, so the rich elites basically blamed the Irish for this fire because they hated them. Okay. And Mrs. O'Leary, the whole thing. And, you um, know, they were just trying to milk a cow, make a living, and play the fiddle. Like, mind your business. I know. So, like I said, the O'Leary house survived. And afterwards, Catherine O'Leary testified and said that she really didn't know how it started. And the city pretty much believed her. They do know for sure that the fire did start in her barn, but they don't know how it happened. God, she must feel so terrible. I know. But people afterwards still like hated on her and blamed the family for the fire. And in 1997, the city council officially exonerated the O'Leary's and the cow. But there are some other theories that people have posited for how the fire has started. One guy said that he thinks a guy named Daniel Pegleg Sullivan started the hay on fire in the barn while trying to steal milk. Another guy said that someone named Louis Cohn started the fire during a craps game. Okay. It's like a whole thing where this guy, Cohn, died in 1942 and he gave some money to Medill School of Journalism. Mm. And he, like, uh, drafted a dedication with the money that said that he was there when the fire started, that he was gambling in the barn with one of the O'Leary boys. And Catherine O'Leary came out to send them home. Mm-hmm. And then they knocked over a lantern as they were running out. Oh. Another theory, this is kind of out there, is that there was a meteor shower. Oh. And since it was so hot and dry, there was... Balls of fire. Like, literally, yeah, balls of fire. Great. And they, balls of fire. They started the fire. <laughs> 
So what a what a story, you know? Like, well, actually, a meteor. Right. Um, everyone's blaming my cow, and Bessie was just like mm-hmm. hanging out. She was mm-hmm. about to go to bed, and this meteor came. And please stop hating on my cow. Right. I I don't know, man. I don't know. I also wanted to mention a family called the Hudlins. They were mentioned in, so I got most of this information from a WTTW documentary called The Great Chicago Fire, a Chicago Stories Special. And there's also a New York Times article. And just so you know, the Chicago History Museum currently has an exhibit on this. But it's there till like 2025 or something. So all of these articles in the documentary mentioned a family called the Hudlins. They were a black family in Chicago. So... Anna Elizabeth Hudlin was born a free woman in Pennsylvania, and her husband, Joseph Hudlin, was born into slavery in Virginia, but escaped. Mm -hmm. And they got married in St. Louis and then moved to Chicago in 1855 and had five kids. Mr. Joseph Hudlin worked at the Chicago Board of Trade as a porter. The building wasn't the same back then, but the one that's there now is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And during the fire, he ran into the building to save some really important documents. Aww. And this was really helpful when the Board of Trade decided to start up again after the fire. And so they put his portrait in the entryway and, like, that. hailed him as a hero. That because, is amazing. Especially yeah. for the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And then his wife, Anna Elizabeth, they they owned a house. And so they opened their house to five families who were displaced and so she was known as the angel of the fire it's so sweet i love them yeah i thought that was just like a nice little story i feel like we should definitely know more about them like how have i never heard about them before that's silly Mm -hmm. yeah it's nice to hear about the people who were actually there so yeah that's the story uh there's Another fire I want to cover that actually happened at the same time called the Peshtigo Fire Mm. in Wisconsin, and it's the deadliest fire in U.S. history. Wow. But we don't never hear about it because it happened at the same time as the Chicago Fire. Right. And um, there's actually a street in Chicago. It's very short. It's downtown. It's called Peshtigo. (laughs) They're like, "Mm, none for Gretchen Wieners. (laughs) In honor of the fire, yeah. And one fun fact also is, so when Chicago was rebuilding, they got a lot of the lumber from a town called Singapore, Michigan. Mm. So they used so much wood and cut down so many trees that the land around the town turned into sand dunes and it buried the town. No way. And they had to abandon the town. That is so sad. Isn't that wild? Whoa. I had no... Yeah. It could do that? I know. Whoa. Erosion, man. Oh, my God. I don't... It's crazy. That is wild. So, that's the story of the Great Chicago Fire. As you may know, our soccer team is called Chicago yes, Fire. I just sports. realized that as I was researching this. I'm like, oh, wait. You just realized that? Well, I mean, I knew it was called Chicago Fire, but I didn't make, make the, the connection g- in my brain. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's embarrassing. It's okay. It's but. okay. We're not big uh, soccer <laughs> people, and, you know? It's Yeah. Yeah, go sports. And one of the stars on the Chicago flag represents the fire. So it's a very, yeah, very important event and kind of shows both the dangers of industrialization and like, like growth without unchecked growth and also shows the resilience of the city and its people. And for those of you who don't know, the Chicago flag has four stars on it. Okay, so the first, <laughs> the first one stands for Fort Dearborn, okay. which was the fort 
right? It's that a was fort. <laughs> it's a fort. Fort. Hmm. Hmm. It's a fort uh, that was here. There's street first. Dearborn. Okay. Yes, and then the second one is for the Great Chicago Fire, and then the other two are we had two World's Fairs, one in 1893 and the other one in 1933. Okay. So that's what they said. Did you for. know? The ice cream cone was invented at the Chicago World's <gasps> Fair. Really? Because there was an ice cream shop and they ran out of dishes and uh-huh. there was a Belgian waffle place next door. So they started oh. making like little waffle dishes. God, I love that. So they that. partnered together and American lo, lo and behold. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> America. Did you know the brownie was invented at the Palmer House Fireproof Hotel? Before or after it was fireproofed? I think after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. They did still serve them. You can get them. The original. And H.H. H. Holmes Oh, yeah. got his victims at the World Fair. Yeah. Anyway, Chicago's a cool place. You guys should come it's visit. It's really cool. Come hang out. This is the O'Leary house. Oh, cute. Like, look, it's just dirt. Uh, like it's the dirt road. Dirt. It's literally like, I so can't weird. even imagine so that. so weird. And this is at Dearborn and Monroe. Oh, and the water tower. Oh, oh I forgot, the, forgot about the water tower. Um, <laughs> okay, so downtown, there's a water pumping station that the exterior survived the fire. Because so, it's made of stone. Yeah. And it's known as the water tower. It's known as the Chicago water tower, and it's very pretty. It is pretty. And it's still you there. can go see it. Yeah. Here's like a panorama of what it looked like. The city before? Or, or like the fire. It's kind of hard to see. Oh, it's, okay. This is a pre-fire house. I think it's adorable. <gasps> I love it. Isn't it cute? It looks old AF. Probably haunted. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this is an artist's rendering of what it looks like. Oh, everyone looks so afraid. Yeah. I mean, I would be, too. I think dying <laughs> yeah. by fire would be one of the worst ways to go. Well, especially a cyclone of fire. Oh, my God. Yeah. Fire tornado. There are ways to die, Mm-mm-hmm. and that is not one. Yeah. That was 150 years ago. It was. It, almost exactly. Exactly. We're just like two weeks past. Yeah. Wow. It's re- really not that long ago. It really isn't. In the grand scheme of things. Like three generations. But the city is way different. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, thank you for that. that was, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm biased because I'm from here, but I thought it was fun. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening to episode 50. Thank you. Wowza. Please tune in next week. We have another true crime for you. We hope you'll join us. As always, we would like to thank the artists that have helped us. Our music is composed by Colin Whitlish, and music production is by Justin Toome. And our cover is by Erica Chase. Would you like to tell them where to find us? You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Send us your own story or suggestions for topics at theinsomniareport at gmail.com. Stay safe, stay spooky, stay sleepy, and be kind to people. And we'll catch you later. Good night. Sweet dreams.